Okay, so again, we're on page 250. This is the beginning of Parshas Vayigash, and we've been discussing the story of Yosef from a number of different angles. So some of this will be repetition, but really our goal today is to try to address some be- very basic and fundamental questions about Yosef's agenda all along. That's, that's my goal today, to address from a number of different perspectives what Yosef's agenda was in this whole charade. Yosef is clearly playing a game. The question is, why? What's behind that game? And so our goal is to really understand uh, what he's doing and the best place to start is, happens to be what we're up to, and that is when his game falls away, right? Because what we're about to read is a passage which will, for some reason, make Yosef say, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef, right? So if, this is, if he's doing that now, then we have to ask ourselves, what just happened that is triggering that? What just happened that is causing Yosef to now finally identify himself. What didn't happen before that he didn't do it then and that he's only doing it now, right? That's why this section is so, all the pieces are important. We're going to put all the pieces that we saw. We're going to jump ahead a tiny bit and see some further pieces, but we're going to pull it all together. But this really is the most important because this is when, this is the turning point. This is when Yosef states and acknowledges who he is. Okay, so we're going, just a very quick recap what we've seen. The brothers, we all know about the sale of Yosef. The brothers, while back, come, 10 of the brothers come to Yosef and to buy food, Yosef accuses them of being spies. They say, no, we have a younger brother and all that good, big story. Yosef grabs Shimon, one of the brothers, and puts him into captivity. He lets the others go back and says, don't come back until you bring that younger brother. Yaakov is uh, quite hesitant in allowing for that to happen. Finally, Yaakov allows that to happen. Yaakov and, uh, excuse me, Binyamin is sent with the, ten, with the nine brothers. They all come back. They're petrified because in addition, what else, did they, what else happens? Uh, they're also, they got their money back in their, in their bags. Right? The whole thing was a really bizarre scenario, right? So they take Shimon, accuse them of spies, and at the same time, they receive their money in return. So something's very strange. They come back and they apologize. They say, we didn't steal the money. We want to give it back. And the person in charge says, don't worry about it. That was last week. And then um, at this point, Yosef comes. And they have a meal somewhat together. And Yosef demonstrates um, he kind of intimidates them. He shows he knows who's oldest, who's youngest. And then he sends them off again. They have a nice, beautiful, fun, happy meal. They eat and they drink, the Torah tells us. And then he sends the brothers off. Everything seems okay. But as soon as they get out of town, Yosef sends some messengers to catch up to them and accuses them of stealing his goblet. And sure enough, the goblet is found in the bag of Binyamin, right? And we pointed out, okay, and the, in the bag of Binyamin, and the person who catches up to them says, well, he's going to be our slave. You guys go home. We don't need you. You didn't do anything wrong. You just happened to be his brother. But he's the stealer. He's the thief. He's the ganiv. And therefore, we're taking him. He is in trouble. He's under arrest. The rest of you could leave. However, the brothers don't listen to that, and they follow Binyamin and this person back to the palace, and that's what we're about to read right now, where the brothers have all returned together, even though they didn't have to. The brothers could have just as easily walked away because they didn't do anything wrong. And, and the Midrashim actually suggests that they thought Binyamin was guilty, right? We explained this last week. Why do they think there was an inkling that Binyamin may have been guilty? Because we know that it runs in the family. That's right. His mother, we know, Rachel, stole from her father, right, from Lavan. And so there's this, hey, you know, maybe this is a family thing where they, you know, they're, they're snatching things or whatever it may be. And so therefore, it seems like the brothers, at least the Midrashim assume that the brothers actually didn't necessarily, they, they, they weren't sure as to what's going on over here. Was this accurate or not? They're not a thousand percent sure, but one way or another, they go along back with Binyamin to, um, to Yosef. And that's what we're about to read right now. Again, page 250. Let's jump into the most exciting part of the story. So by Yigash, I love Yehuda. We're just going to read through the verses and then we're going to do the analysis. So Yehuda, again, page 250, top of the page. Yehuda comes forward. And again, one of the things we're not going to be talking about today is leadership. Certainly Yehuda is demonstrating time and time again, he takes responsibility, right? If there's a problem, before you call him, he's there, right? So Yehuda, no one told him he has to do this, but Yehuda steps up. The Yomri says, Be Adoni, please my master. Let me speak words in the ears of my master. Please don't be mad at me. Right, again, you have to keep in mind, this is a big deal. He's confronting and, and going to be arguing with uh, the second in command in the most powerful country, you know, a few thousand years ago. If they don't like the way you look, 
you're dead, right? So he's now going to be arguing and almost accusing him. So this is, this is really something where he has to say, please don't be angry. He has to speak with deference. And that's why he says, Ki kefaro, right? The simple understanding is he's saying, I respect you. You're like Paro to me. I have absolute respect for you. But please hear me out, okay? Okay, uh, okay. Okay, let's go a little further. Good test. Pasuk, pasuk uh, verse 19. Adoni master, you, meaning he's speaking in the third person. My master, i.e. Yosef, asked of us, or your servants, saying, avo ach, do you have a brother or a father? Vanomer aladoni, and we responded to the master, i.e. you. Yeishlanu avzaken, we have an old father. Viyeled zekunim katan, and a young, uh, and, a, and a child of old age. Vaachiv meis, his brother died. Vayivaser hu levadu imo. he is left alone to his mother. Not that his mother's alive, but he's the only child of that mother. Vaaviv ahevo, and his father really loves him. Vatomer el sorry? Oh. And you, Yosef, said to us, Haridu Eli, bring him down. And I will look at him. I just bless you. I just wanna I just wanna verify. I just wanna see him. And we told you then. He's not able to leave his father. If he leaves his father, his father is going to die. Right? His father is so connected to him that if he if his son goes across to another country. It's going to be overwhelming. He's going to die. And you told us, If you don't bring him with you, you will never be able to see me again. And when we went back to our father, and we told him the words, uh, your words, the words of the master, our father said, Go back. And bring us some food. Vanomer, we reminded him, we told him, we can't go. We can't go. Unless we have Binyamin, our youngest brother, with us, then we'll go down. Because we cannot see the man without this man, without our younger brother with us. And your servant, our father, said, And here they quote, Yaakov, Yaakov's pitiful um, comments to them. You know, children, that my wife um, had um, my wife had two sons. And and by the way, it's interesting. Yaakov, the brothers are repeating. My wife, right? Really, has four wives. If it'd be most accurate to say one of my wives. The fact that he says my wife makes it abundantly clear. Rachel is superior. Rachel is special. And that's what Yaakov said to the brothers. And that's what the brothers are reiterating over here, which is significant, right? They could change, right? There's always a game of telephone. Whenever I hear you say something and I say it to someone else, I could consciously or subconsciously change details. But they're saying it presumably exactly the way their father said it. This is my wife. And they, Yehuda is whom? He's a child of Leah. So this is, these are probably somewhat hurtful words for him to hear and say. But he's saying them nonetheless. And he says, Vayete, uh, verse 28, we're getting towards the bottom of the page, Vayete echad mi'iti, and one of them is gone. V'omar ach toraf, and I said he must have been killed. V'lori'isi v'adhena, and I haven't seen him until now. U'lekachtem gam ezem im panai, and you took this one from me as well. Vikarahu, and you will take this one from me as well. Vikarahu asone, and an accident will happen. and you will take me down to the grave in evil. I'll die in a state of misfortune. Vaata, and now, so now this is Yehuda speaking. Yehuda is now pulling this all together. He said, This is all the things that happened. Kivoyil Avdacha Avi. What if I go back to our father? Vanar inenu itanu, and Binyamin is not with us. Vinafsho Kishura, Vinafsho, their souls are connected. When he sees that he's not there, top of page 251, what a perfect, 252, what a perfect place to turn the page because it's so dramatic. If he sees he's not there, he will die. He will die. He cannot, he will not be able to survive without Binyamin being there. You will bring our father uh, down again into the grave um, in, in sorrow. Now he explains why he, Yehuda, is speaking. He says, I guaranteed 
to bring this child back, to bring Binyamin back. Mim avi lemar from my father. Im lo avi, I told him like this. Im lo avi yenu elacha vechatas avi kaliyam. If I don't bring him back, I will be guilty my whole life. Va'ata, and now, and now Yehuda comes to the climax. He says, Yeshevna avdacha tachas anar eveladoni. Let I, this is Yehuda speaking, let me be in his stead. I'm, you know, the, the commentator, the Midrashim say, he says, I'm stronger than him, I'm brighter than him, I'm everything more than him. Why would you take Benyamin? Take me. Let Benyamin go. I will be the slave instead of him. And let Benyamin go back home. That's his plea. That's his final plea, right? Vanar yal im echaven. Please, please, please let this boy go back to his father. Ki eich elel avi. How could I go back to my father? And now here he pulls on his sympathy. Vanar inenuiti without. Um, without the, the child with me, without Benjamin with me, pen avi, I cannot possibly see the evil that will befall my father. Okay? End of speech. Pretty dramatic, pretty powerful speech. He did a great job. In other words, if you listen closely, he kind of pointed out to, Yehud, uh, to Yosef how Yosef said and did some things that were strange. And he kind of critiqued Yosef subtly, right? He said, you asked us all these extraneous questions, like, you come to do business, you don't typically ask, if I buy something at the, at the grocery store, they don't start asking me about my father and child. And they do, they're probably being a little bit too chatty, right? I mean, they ask questions about the father, about the brother, why are you asking these questions? And you promised to just look at him. And now look what's happening, right? And then he pulls on his, so he's, he's critiquing Yosef subtly. And then he is pulling on his heartstrings by saying, how can I go back to my father? And then he's making a pretty strong, powerful, intelligent trade. Why Benyamin? Take me. I'm just so much better. There's no reason in the world to take Binyamin. Okay? That is the end of his plea. And now we begin what is uh, 45, uh, 50, 45th chapter, verse 1. Yosef could not um, hold back anymore, right? He cannot restrain himself. In front of everyone there. And he called out, Everyone, leave. And no one stood there when he revealed himself to his brothers. Now we are going to stop reading the text here. We know what happens. He says, I'm Yosef. Is my father alive? The brothers are in shock. They eventually embrace and everyone lives happily ever after. Okay? Sort of. Uh, But what we need to do right now is pause and ask, why does Yosef share, again, for months, right? This whole story takes place over months, right? Maybe even years. We don't know. But for all this time, and not only now, we have to also ask a question, right? Yosef could have, at least while he was in charge for the past, you know, seven, eight, uh, yes, eight, nine years, he could have so easily sent a postcard. Hey, dad, hope you're well. I'm, you know, second in command in Egypt. Boom, right? He is the second in command of Egypt. He could have, when he was a slave, maybe not. But why doesn't he reach out to his father all this time? Why does he play this game with his brothers during this time? And why now, more than any other time, does he reveal himself to his brothers? Yes? Isn't it true that in order to do Teshuva properly, you have to be presented with the same situation and change the way you handled it? That is true. So isn't that what's happening? Could be. Could be. So let's add a lot. Let's, let's come back to that. Good. Excellent. So, well, I'm going to repeat what, what Mark said in just a moment. So let's, let's, let's get there first. First, let's start with uh, one possible approach, and that is something that Rabbi Yoel Ben-Nun, he's a big uh, Tanakh teacher. You know, he lives, he's alive. He lives in, uh, in he's a teacher in, in uh, the Gush Yeshiva, Haaretzion. Uh, and he argues that really Yosef, and we alluded to this way, way, way back when. You know, Yosef, let's go back, all the way back, to Yosef, his brothers, and that fateful day when he gets sold as a slave. They're a wealthy family, right? Pretty wealthy family. We, we know that they conquered cities. They have, he has a lot of wealth from Levan. We could imagine, and we actually know from the text, they have many slaves and servants and all of that, okay? The father, Yaakov, is well aware of some of the conflict that exists between the brothers and the family. He, he knows. He knows, right? He tells us, we saw that already in the beginning of the last Parsha, that Yaakov is not... Um, is not, he's very much aware of the fact that the brothers are rather jealous of Yosef. We saw that together. Yaakov is, so then you have a moment where everyone is in Shechem. Okay. All the 10 brothers, yeah, 10 brothers are in Shechem. Okay. And Yaakov wants to check on them. Okay. Now Shechem is far away. 
We pointed out it's a dangerous place. There are people who are still mad at the brothers for what they did. Remember, they wiped out that entire, they wiped out a good chunk of that city. So it's a pretty dangerous place to begin with. Yaakov knows the 10 brothers are far away from home, all by themselves, and Yaakov wants to check in on them. So of all people, who do you pick? Yosef? That's where you're going to do? A, he's one person traveling by himself. It's very dangerous. The, ter- the area is very dangerous because people don't like the children of Yaakov. They just killed out a whole city. They're not very well loved over there. And we saw that in the text. B, the brothers themselves don't really hate Yosef. Why in the world there's so many other options of servants and slaves and whatever to send to go check on the brothers? Why in the world would he send Yosef? Now, we have no, good a- we have no definitive answer for that. Some suggest, well, Yosef was a great tzaddik, and therefore he said that Yosef would be safe uh, because he would have extra protection. That's how some explain this. But one could make, I think, a pretty strong argument. Imagine Yosef, for years after he gets sold by his brothers, he's going, if you're Yosef, in your head, you're going through that those days and weeks in your head over and over again. What went wrong? What went wrong? What went wrong? Right? You could imagine he's sitting there in his mind replaying the whole storyline. And of course, initially, it's the, he's angry at the brothers. But Yosef's a pretty intelligent man. And at one point, perhaps, perhaps it crosses his mind to think and wonder, why did my father send me here? That's so weird. Why would he do this? It doesn't make any sense. And he may possibly, we don't know, come to the following conclusion. We know from the story of Dina and Shechem, if you recall, okay? If you recall, the brothers, all the brothers were in on some plan. We said Shimon and Levi had their own plan, but all the brothers were in, and even their father knew of some plan, but does their father speak at all? Meaning, let's just quickly review that story, right? Dina gets violated, Shechem and his father, Hamor, come in, they want to make this deal, and the initial plan, according to most commentators, is that they're going to make them all get circumcised, and while they're all in pain, they're going to grab their sister back, End of story. Shimon and Levi say, oh yeah, and we're going to kill everyone. That's why the father got mad at Shimon and Levi. But everyone, including their father, was in on that plan. Everyone was in on this devious trick to go ahead and get everyone circumcised. And the goal was to go, it wasn't devious, it was necessary, to have everyone circumcised. And then during that time, they're going to grab Dina back. Why doesn't Yaakov speak? Yaakov doesn't speak up, even though he's part of the plan, even though he's the father. But there may have been something, you know, Yaakov's kind of cleaning his hands. He doesn't say the lie. He doesn't set up the trick. He has his sons do that. They do the, the dirty work, you know. Um, but Yaakov doesn't really involve himself. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what's happening over here. In Yosef's mind. And Yosef is thinking to himself that maybe Abba, Yaakov, he really also didn't think that I'm fit to be part of the family. And maybe he had this all set up because otherwise why in the world would he send me? Send me? And therefore, my father also was in on this, and my father wants to have nothing to do with me. And therefore suggests, Rav Yol Ben-Nun, that the reason that ya- Yosef does not reach out to his family for all these years is he thinks that not only the brothers don't like me, but my father doesn't like me either. My father wanted me dead or gone as well. Right? It's, it's a jarring um, suggestion or a possibility over here. It's a jarring approach. It's not the classical approach. Okay? So let's, let's keep on moving. Let's assume that for a second. First of all, it makes the story of Yosef all that much more pitiful. Right? Those initial stages, you know, initially, according to the classic approach, he thinks that my brothers hate me, but my father loves me. Right? According to this approach, he thinks there's no one in his life who cares for him. That's heavy. Okay, so it seems like maybe, good question, excellent question. Maybe Yaakov at one point after the dream said, you know what, you, you, you lost it. You, you had potential, but clearly you're with your dramatic over-the-top dreams. Remember, Yaakov himself starts arguing with him about the dreams. Maybe at one point, again, the story, the Torah gives like five verses to summarize an entire story or, you know, a few verses. It could be at one point Yaakov possibly felt, or at least in Yosef's mind, possibly felt that, I, I, I thought it was you, but then you lost it. But I, I, your question is a, a very good one. So according to this approach, approach number one, Yosef doesn't reach out because he's mad at his family. If that's the case, what's he doing over here? Explains Rabbi Benun. And again, this is not the conventional thinking, but we mentioned this in the first class of Yosef. Maybe he's just playing games with them. And maybe he doesn't plan on telling them ever, right? Um, ever that who he is, and he is just making their life miserable as a form of revenge of some sort. If that's the case, why does he reveal himself now? Suggests Rabbi Benun, 
A simple solution. The verse says, okay, Velo Yachol, the verse 1, again, chapter 48, verse 1, Velo Yachol Yosef Lisa Peik. Yosef couldn't restrain himself. What does that sound like? It sounds like he was planning on restraining himself further, but just lost it. He just lost it. He was suffering. It was too much for him. And therefore, he is compelled against his will. He wants to keep the charade going endlessly. Who knows? Who knows? We don't really know what his end game was, but it was going to just pull them on and pull them on and make them suffer. And he was not planning on telling his father, not planning on telling his brothers, and he just couldn't hold on because it was painful for him as well. And eventually, he couldn't restrain himself and he let it all out. This is... A fascinating theory. It addresses to me one of the very stra- you know, powerful questions about why Yaakov, Yosef doesn't reach out during these years. To me, one of the strongest answers to that question. We'll see another one in a moment. But it's certainly not in line with any of our classical commentators. But it's food for thought. It's food for thought. It's one approach. Rabbi Ben Nun, that's approach number one. So again, according to this approach, Yosef thinks their father's in on it as well. He doesn't reach out to them all this time because he thinks they all don't like him. He doesn't care about them. They come and he's just playing games with them. What does he reveal now? Nothing about what was just happened. It's just he can't restrain himself. That's approach number one. Again, it is, it's hard to accept in some ways. Everything, it's certainly not in line with our sages and their approach. Um, and who Yosef is, it puts Yosef in a very tricky light. Again, you don't want to pass judgment of what he went through, but it also puts him in this, uh, you know, very strange light in terms of him essentially playing mind games with them. Let's keep on rolling because we, have, we, wanna, we, wanna, we have a lot, to, a lot to cover. The second approach is that of the Ramban, Nachmanides, okay? Um, and I want to bring you back we're going to be doing a little jumping around. I want to bring you back to page um, 234. 234. 234 is the very first time that Yosef sees the brothers after all these years. And we ask, and we know that Yo- this one, Yosef begins his charade. And we ask the question, why is he playing this charade? So look what it's, according to ben Nun, Rabbi Benun, this is what the verse should say. Yosef sees the brothers and says, and he remembers how poorly they treated him. And therefore, he wants to mistreat them in return. That's what the verse should say, right? The first time he sees them. It should say, Yosef sees the brothers. He remembers what they did to him. And therefore, he does what he does. But that's not what the Torah says. And this is probably one of the stronger textual questions on Rabbi Bitten, that first approach. Look what the verse says. This is, again, the first time Yosef sees the brothers. Verse 9. Vayizkar Yosef eisacholomos asher chalam lahem. Yosef remembers the dreams that he dreamt for them, and therefore, and he says to them, you are spies. That's interesting. What does this have to do with the dreams? According to Rabbi Benun, it, it should, again, I'm going to repeat myself, I'm sorry, but Yosef remembers what they did to him, and therefore, he says, you're spies. In other words, Yosef's trying to play mind games. But what the text seems to say is that the reason he accuses them of being spies is because of the dreams that he dreamt. Which, which leads, let me say a little more, then maybe this will make sense. Which leads the Ramban to suggest that the reason Yosef is doing all of this is because Yosef believes that he has a mandate to ensure the fulfillment of his dreams. Again, he has two dreams. Dream number one is we are me'almim alumim, we are collecting grain, Right, which has a lot to do with the brothers coming, and with my brothers, with you brothers, and you all came down to bow to me. And dream number two is that the suns and the stars and all that, and I, you know, and they all bow down to me as well. Right, that the, the eleven stars, i.e., the brothers, and the sun and the moon, his mother or stepmother, and their father, all bow down to me. Now, Yosef. So, Yosef, so the Ramban suggests that Yosef is trying to fulfill, he thinks that he is obligated, he believes he's obligated to fulfill the dreams that he had. Now, ask yourself a very basic question. Just call the brothers up, send them that postcard and say, hey, guys, I became second in some commands. I'm alive, I'm well, I need you to come here and bow down to me and then life will be good because that's all I need. I need you to fulfill the dream. Just come and bow down to me, right? And Abba, I need you to come down as well. Bow down to me. You know what? Maybe I'll make your life easy. I'll come to you maybe on a, on a vacation and you'll bow down to me and then my dreams will be fulfilled, right? Why in the world is he doing this, right? The Ramban, and the Ramban doesn't spell this out, but the answer is obvious, right? If the Ramban says the reason Yosef does this whole charade is to get the brothers to bow down. And I'm asking a very simple question. So why doesn't he just tell them, hi, the first time he sees them, guys, I'm Yosef, 
bow down, right? And don't listen, right? He's important. Okay, they won't, could, a, possibility A, they won't listen because they're still the brothers. That's possibility A. Possibility B, which I think is what Rabban seems to be saying, um, alluding to, and that is that he thinks, again, in his mind, for, there's, I, I could bow and I could bow, right? In other words, I could, you know, we, we all do this. We could put on a nice front. We could be very sweet to people. And we could genuinely be sweet to people, right? I could bow to you, and then I could really bow out of submission. And a bow, a real bow, means that I completely, it's not just the bow, right? Yosef had a dream that the brothers are subservient to him. If they knew who he is, we could, maybe they'll bow, maybe they won't, but he's brother Yosef, brother Joe, eh, we know who he is, right? They're never going to take him as seriously, right? So he believes, again, if he's trying to fulfill his dreams, he believes he needs them to really bow down, right? And therefore, he can't reveal himself. He needs them to come begging. And that's why when they come as 10, that's not good. Because the first dream has what? 11 bowing down. And that's why he has this whole thing with Binyamin. I need Binyamin here. It doesn't mention anything about the father yet, right? And his goal, right? So first dream, check. Because he finally got Binyamin to come. What's the game plan behind the whole second charade? So suggest what the Ramban seems to be saying, and again, this is uh, some he says, some he alludes to, and that is uh, the following. He suggests that Yosef is now going to hold on to Binyamin, and you know what he's going to say? I'll let Binyamin go if you not bow down, because he doesn't, well, they're already all bowed down already. What does he need? Who does he need to be there? The father. If you bring that, he'll, now he's going to, if I were Yosef, now this is the follow, this is what should have happened. He should have said, oh, I don't believe you about the father. I'm going to hold on to your younger brother and bring me your father. And by the way, if he's married to someone, bring her as well. Okay? And basically put Benjamin away. He knows the father will then go and come because he loves his son. They'll bow down. And then Yosef will say, you know, Tafnas Panech will say, Ani Yosef, I am Yosef. Okay? Um, so we asked, so, so what happened? Why doesn't he continue? Right? He's, he's stopping short according to this approach. Right? There's something missing. Right? So suggest, let's go back to where we are right now, and you'll see a key line over here. Um, um, if you go back in the beginning, we are on um, the last line on page 250 or 251. Yeah, the last one, 250. The Hayakiro, so this is still part of Yehuda's speech. When he sees, ki ein hanar, when the sun's not there, when his son is not there, vamase. Our old elderly father, he's not going to come here. He's going to die, right? They tell Yehuda, I mean, Yehuda doesn't know what Yosef's planning on doing, but Yehuda, Yosef now hears from Yehuda that our father, he's not a young man, right? He's in his, he's three digits, right? Um, and he's going to hear about the loss of his son. He's not strong enough. He's not well enough that he could deal with that emotional shock. And he is going to die. And at that point, Yosef says, uh-oh, abort, right? Because it's only as valuable as, the, as the, plan, the, the, the whole purpose of the plan is to get Yaakov to go visit him and bow down to him, right? It's subserviently, to really see him as a master. And that's the only way in Yosef's mind I'm going to fulfill this dream. Um, the problem is that he now hears the dream's not gonna, it's not gonna work. Because Yaakov's never gonna make it to Egypt in a state of shock, in a state of worry. He's too old, he will die. And therefore, and that reads as well, Yosef therefore couldn't restrain himself. In other words, Yosef basically had to abort the plan. His whole plan, and it was working so perfectly, was eventually to get the brothers to come, and then the father to come, and then he'll have all the dreams fulfilled, and then he would reveal himself. He can't do it because he now hears in Yehuda's speech that his father's not going to make it. So according to the second approach, we still have some questions in this approach, according to the second approach, the reason that Yosef finally reveals himself is not just because of a overwhelming emotions, like the first approach. The first approach just says, it was too hard. Nothing particular happened now. It's just too hard. And therefore, just, ah, I got to tell you the truth. I'm Yosef, right? This approach is very calculated. Yosef's listening, and he hears my father's going to die, in which case the dreams can't be fulfilled. I have to let him go. I have to tell you the truth. And that's why he does it now. Now, there's one. I'll take a question in one second. There's one overwhelming question which we have to ask which the Ramban doesn't really address which is such an important question is Yosef supposed to be doing this? In other words you have a prophecy I don't know again none of us have prophecies but you have a prophecy right? Um, do you have an ob- a prophecy means God's telling presumably means God's telling you this is going to happen 
Do I have an obligation to go make sure that happens? Not necessarily, unless there's, right? You could have a prophecy where God says, you need to do this. But the prophecy Yosef had doesn't sound like that. It sounds like God is telling him what will happen, right? So I don't have an obligation to, right? Meaning, if you're uh, one of the late prophets in Jewish history and you hear the temple's going to be destroyed, does that mean you're obligated to destroy the temple? No, that's ludicrous. Of course not, right? It's just information, which you need to know, right? So Yosef is being told the brothers are going to bow down to you. Don't play God. Right? Does Yosef, so the, the, the billion dollar question on this approach is, is Yosef doing the right thing or not? The Ramban's neutral about it. He doesn't weigh in. He just explains what Yosef's doing. But what's very troubling about this whole approach is that Yosef is living out a dream, right? I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prop, whatever you want to call it, but it's not justified. Why did he think he had to make it happen? I don't know. That's the question I'm asking. That's exactly what I'm asking. I don't know, right? Meaning Yosef understood that he had to make this happen, but it seems like this is a major mistake. And actually, I'm sorry, I keep on pushing you up, but one more, I just want to make one final point. The Nitziv, the Nitziv, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, he lived a few hundred, you know, a little while ago, um, who adopts the approach of the Ramban, actually argues, we're not going to see this inside. Um, actually, let's see it inside. Let's go to chapter 46 for a second. We're going to jump ahead for just a moment. Uh, go to... Um, Go to page 260. Go to page 260. Actually, 261. Okay. Go to page 261. Last line on the page. 20, verse 29. Page 261. Listen, this is when Yaakov and Yosef reunite. Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to meet Yisrael, his father in Goshen. He appeared before him, fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck excessively. What's odd about that verse? And he wept on his neck. Who's crying, by the way? Who's the, who's the subject? Yosef. Thank you. Everyone had a good English classes back in the day, right? So Yosef is the subject. Yosef is the one crying. What's his father doing? Nothing. Nothing. It's just, what kind of bizarre situation is that? How crazy is that? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Why in the world? Yaakov finally hasn't seen his son in decades. He, he should be... Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I skipped a whole bunch of details. Yeah, he knows. He's visiting Yosef. He finally sees his son. What's happening? And then Nitziv explains, okay, to make, I'm going to summarize a more complicated piece, but he says that he is upset. Yes, he's so happy to see his son, but he's also upset. He's upset because Yosef made a tremendous life-altering mistake. He thought that he had to fulfill this dream, and he therefore put the family through all this anguish, and he shouldn't have done so. So he loves Yosef, and we'll see, he loves him dearly. He speaks fondly to him, but at the same time, he's incredibly angry about this entire situation. So much, I'm going to add a couple of details. Uh, we'll, we'll revisit this passage in more detail. You'll see, even in this moment, Yosef, you'll see, I'm going to foreshadow and, and spoiler alert over here. He's going to, he actually, we'll see it inside together, God willing, in the future. But Yosef actually dresses up like Paro in this passage, according to the Nitziv. Why? To get his father to... Bow down to him, right? Because Yosef's still trying to live this dream and Yaakov over here is quite upset. And so the lack of emotion is due to the fact that he is incredibly angry at his son for trying to live out this dream. But this approach reads, again, it still puts Yosef in a negative light, right? Let's just summarize this approach number two. Approach number two is that Yosef had these dreams and the text really seems to back that up. Again, the first time Yosef sees the brothers Right before he starts accusing them of these crazy things, it doesn't say he remembers the pain. It says he remembers the dreams, implying that that's what's inspiring these next statements. And so Yosef now is uh, trying to ensure that all the dreams get fulfilled. He fulfills dream number one. Eleven brothers bow to him. Check. He tries to fulfill dream two. It doesn't work because he hears that Yaakov won't make it. And so he aborts the plan. And it, the question, the overarching question, was this right or wrong? The Nitziv, at least a later commentator says, was terribly wrong. He didn't have a mandate to fulfill this dream. And therefore, he shouldn't, he should have right away told his father who he was. He shouldn't have played any of these games with his brothers. All this was really a terrible mistake on Yosef's part. Again, pretty, pretty negative. Our, our, our sum total, these first two approaches put Yosef, the first approach puts Yosef in a really bad light. The second approach in a kind of misguided light, right? He puts the family through so much anguish for something he shouldn't have been doing. And thank you for your patience, Mark. Yes? So I'm going to combine what I was saying before with mm -hmm. something else. If indeed Hashem gives him this prophecy through a dream, yep. 
And wouldn't Yosef, if he's believed all this up until now, assume that his father's not going to die because it wasn't part of the mm-hmm, dream that mm-hmm. his father's going to die? Great question. Great question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So then what's Joseph trying to do? He figured, well, why did God give me this dream so I know how to handle the situation when it came up? And now he's going to make sure that they really are sincere about protecting their younger brother. But where's that in the dream? Where's that in where where's there's no dream about the brother. No, it's not it's not the dream of how they got there, but that's how he's interpreting it. That okay, I got this far, I'm setting it up, they're gonna do true repentance, okay? But if my father isn't here, that interrupts the plan. So he he, instead of thinking, well it's God's will that my father will make it and not die. Right. Okay. He suddenly makes this assumption if I don't continue doing this, it's not gonna work. Okay. Okay. So, so, so you're you're connecting the dream together with repentance. So I want I want I think we could look at them almost independently. And really, now I'm going to move to a third approach, which really is essentially what you're saying about the repentance, and has nothing to do with the dream. Okay, because I think we could see this all independent of that. Because again, the big question to the second approach is it, it, it reads nicely. Am I with you? Am I, am I losing? Are we are we all together in this? Yeah. Right. Basically, he's trying to live out his dreams. That's why he's doing this. The question we have to ask about this is: Wait, if that's the case, why is he doing this? Why is he trying to make his dreams? come true. Uh, that's approach number one. I'm, I'm suggesting a different approach. Approach number one is it's pure revenge. Again, all the, it's a puzzle. We have to, all the pieces have to come together. If it's revenge, then the end of the story is hard to understand, right? Because why does he finally reveal himself? So it's half-hearted revenge because he also loves them, right? And textually we point to, so it's a little iffy at the end and it's a little iffy in the beginning, according to approach number one, because in the beginning it seems to say it has nothing to do with revenge, it seems to do with his dreams. Did he have such a big ego we don't know. Of yeah, we don't. I mean, we, the dreams are the only indication. Right, his father gave him that. Right, but he's seventeen. Let's, you know, I don't want to. Let's let's think back to how we acted when we were seventeen. Don't want to go there, right? Uh, so, so right. So yes, when he was seventeen, he seemed to have a sense of grandeur and a sense of you know self-centeredness. But he's now taking care of a kind. He, we don't know. You know, it's hard to know what kind of development. And we saw some self-sacrifice later on with the wife of Potiphar. You know, many saw that as if the Torah. Again, all we have is the Torah to, giving us the story. So we could conjecture as much as we want, but we want to be as faithful to the text a, as possible. That's our starting point. And the text in that story seems to indicate that that seems to demonstrate some turn, right? Because it's no longer about him and his gratification, etc. He's able to live for a higher ideal. And then he becomes, you know, the king. And so we, we, we suggested all along that, yes, Yosef starts off says self-centeredly, but he see, the text seems to indicate that he's grown tremendously as a person. And isn't he also hurt not knowing if his father was part of the conspiracy, meaning did he attempt to find him? Right, right. Was he with the brothers or with Joseph? Right. So again, according to the first approach, he, he assumes or he's unsure, absolutely. And he, he thinks that the father was in on it. The, right, and that's, so yeah. then why a father knowing this would he give him that beautiful coat and foment more trouble? He, he, the, the commentators say he made a grave mistake. Yeah, the, the Talmud has a passage. Never favor one child over another because of a simple coat. Uh, you know, the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt for 200 years, right? It's a good way of summing it up. Uh, they basically blame Yaakov for the entirety of the, of the, of the terrible exile, uh, you know, of all the death and slavery that took place. They pin it on, on playing favorites. Not a good thing. Yes? Why, why would he think that it's his, his job, Joseph's job, to make the dream, fulfill the dream? Is that hubris? Is it, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, the Ramban seemingly is coming from a religious perspective, meaning it seems to be a mistake in his understanding. Again, there's a fine line. You could have, if, again, you know, we're not accustomed to a prophecy. But we, as Jews, prophecy is a fundamental part of our tradition. And if you were to get, receive a prophecy that says, do X, even if it's crazy, like take your beloved son and bring him up onto an altar, right? You have to do it, right? Um, the question over here is, Yosef didn't receive a mandate. He didn't receive instructions. He received a vision of what's going to be. So, Again, the Ramban's ambiguous. Uh, the, this, you know, the, the author of this approach is ambiguous in terms of did he do the right thing or not. 
I, there's an argument to be made, and again, a, a, a later commentary who's kind of building off this approach says it was a mistake. It was a mistake. Maybe it was a religious mistake. He is coming from a good place. It's hard, right. So there, there are still a couple of unknowns. So again, according to these two approaches, Yosef is certainly still um, not in the best of lights. The first approach, really bad light. It's anger, it's self-centeredness, and eventually falls apart. Approach number two, it's fulfillment of dreams. Maybe coming from a good place, but still mistaken. Yes? Where was his emunah? In believing that God was going to make it happen. Make what happen? So again, he believes when God says, God says I should put on tefillin every morning. I shouldn't have a moon. It's going to happen. I have to put it on, right? Right? What is... Again, whenever you have a... If if he understood it was a commandment from God, then faith, right? It's a a very... We have to be very careful with our, our... we throw around emuna very, uh, not, not you, but as a society, as a cult, as Jews, uh, you know, faith doesn't exempt us from doing everything we have to do, right? And so if he believed that he was instructed to do so, then, then he had every responsibility. Just like, uh, I believe through prophecy, I have an instruction to keep Shabbos. I can't say I'm going to have faith. So I'm just going to walk around and hope Shabbos happens. No, I have to do something about it. Okay, that's exactly, that's the question we're asking, right? And that's, that's the Ramban's approach saying, that's the Nitziv saying that he made a mistake. You're absolutely right. That, that's exactly his point. It, it, it's not a question of Amuna, It's a question of he misunderstood what he was supposed to do and he was wrong. I don't think he was supposed to do anything. Right, and that's right. That's right. And that's, and that's exactly the Nitziv is saying. You're absolutely right. And that's the Nitziv is saying he shouldn't have done this. Exactly. Yes. And yet, Understanding what he's supposed to do when he hears about a dream, and it would have to include his own as well. So he's left to interpret it a certain way. God doesn't tell him, you know, oh, tell the the, the baker this or the cook that or the pharaoh this. It's basically here's what it means. Right. So right. if he's right in in the past, right. Why isn't he right in interpreting this dream? Yeah. Yeah. So so it could be the question. Right. So so again, there's there's that ambiguity over here. Is he right? Is he wrong? Um, I think if we start at the end of the story, the fact that it didn't work out the way he wanted it to work out would reflect, would seem to say that, you know, and, and, and by the way, you know, why is this dream different than the other dreams? It's because, okay, we'll have a moral lesson, an important, I think a fundamental lesson, because all the other dreams didn't relate to him, right? You know, the, the Talmud says, you know, you can't free yourself from slavery. In other words, we all, I'll say it differently, we all have our own blind spots and biases, and when we start to tell, you know, figure out what we need based on our own interpretation, that's a very dangerous way to go. That's the importance of having people we could speak to, and so when Yosef is interpreting other people's dreams, great. I could tell Paro what his dream means because it's about Paro. Might ultimately have to do with him. I could tell the baker and the, and the, you know, but for me, that's a little more tricky. It's a little more tricky because there's certain biases. I'm going to keep on rolling. I want to get to the last things, and we have to let uh, Ms. Ball get her class started. So two other approaches, two very different approaches. One, like Mark was saying before, the Barbanel. The Barbanel says the reason Yosef is doing all of this is Yosef is facilitating the process of repentance for his brothers. Again, his brothers sacrificed one brother for their well-being. They said Yosef is a threat we talked about this in more detail. Not an existential threat. They saw Yosef as someone who was trying to push them away from the family. And therefore, they go ahead and they say, well, we need to get rid of Yosef for our sake. And so twice, he tests them on this. He takes Shimon, right? He takes one brother. Will they come back for that brother? And then he takes Binyamin in an almost identical reenactment of his own story. Because, again, as we spoke about this last week, Binyamin is similarly from the other family, the family that the brothers probably have some jealousy towards, the family of Rachel. And they put Yosef and they make Binyamin out, he makes Binyamin out to be somewhat guilty, right? Just like they truly felt Yosef was guilty. Again, they had their own biases playing a role and clouding their judgment, but they felt Yosef was a, a threat to them. Yosef was trying to hurt them, right? And so similarly over here, Binyamin did something wrong. He stole. Will they stand up? For that one brother, will they stand together or will they once again walk away? And so suggests the Rabbanel, Yosef was trying to facilitate the tshuva. And now the Yehuda comes back and says, take me instead of him. He demonstrates. And all the brothers come back together. They demonstrate collectively that they have done tshuva. And therefore, it's very appropriate that Yosef now says, okay, guys, well done. You know, the curtain, the, you know, the, 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 everyone, by the way, this has all been a, a game. You passed, 
right? And that's essentially it. They passed by coming back together, by demonstrating they stand up for their brother, they've demonstrated their past, and Yosef has just facilitated the perfect repentance, because repentance, as Marcus said, is all about coming into a similar situation and not making the same mistake again, right? That's ideal repentance. On Yom Kippur, or every day we could say, Slach Lanu, God, I'm so sorry, and feel remorse. But the only time we actually could prove that we really have changed is if we enter the same exact challenge and we don't mess up that time. That's the only way to tell. And so the brothers did that. It's a beautiful approach, but there's still one major flaw to me, and that is it's pretty audacious of Yosef to play God, right? We don't believe, right? I know that you did, not you, heaven, the person in the chair between you did something wrong, the, the imaginary person, okay? This person, Mr. X, did something wrong. So I should go and create a scenario to test them? That's crazy. That's ludicrous. That's incredibly, it just, it's not, I mean, it, it comes from a very nice place. But if someone were to tell me, you know, someone would start yell, calling me and yelling at me and sending me hate mail and, and drive me crazy. And then, you know, a year later, you know, after I finally, you know, I've I demonstrated such incredible patience, you know, they turned to me and said, you know, when you were 18, you acted like a jerk and this was all a test and you should thank me because I just helped you do tshuva. I said, get a life. Get a life. What are you, crazy? What do you, how could you, what gives you the audacity to do such a thing, right? So is this really appropriate for Yosef to play such games with them? Again, it's coming from an incredibly lofty place, but it's a very strange exercise. It's not my responsibility to cause you to do tshuva, right? So it's, it's a little hard for me to swallow this approach. It reads beautifully. It fits perfectly. The themes are there perfectly. It, again, has nothing to do with the dreams. It's, it comes from a beautiful place. Yosef is depicted in this beautiful, lofty light, but it's interesting that he's in some ways playing God. Yes? But without the dream, he would never have thought of doing this. It would have just happened. Okay. Okay, so, so you're saying it goes back to the dreams they felt he had a mandate. So I'll ask the same question as the Ramban. Who says you're supposed to fulfill the dream? Well, how, how would he know? Okay, well, that's... Okay, well, it's a pretty dangerous thing to do. It's a pretty dangerous thing to do. You know, if I have a dream, I'm not, I'm not acting on it. Period. Putting that on. Ah, I don't know. Uh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay, yes, Roberta. Emotionally, I mean, it almost takes back to the young Joseph again. I'm better than your brothers. I know better. Right, right. Right, again. We just kind of want to use it, which is not... You have the choice of looking at it in a negative light and saying, I'm playing God. You could look at it in a way of saying, I'm doing this from a very, you know, I'm doing this from this very religious and, and devout place. But it's a little interesting, right? So you could say he felt that he had to do this based on this prophecy, and it could be. Um, and again, you have the choice. I'm not sure. The Barbanel is arguing that we shouldn't see this in this negative light. It's not coming from an immature, self-centered place. He feels like this is the right thing to do. Mark's adding, he feels, not just feels, but driven by the prophecy, but one way or another, it's coming from a religious, you know, a, a devout place, not from a self-centered place. Could be. We have, one, yeah, um, yes? Well, no, I was just going to say, it's, we have asking in both, both places. Yeah. Yes, yes, it, it does. It's lower. We're moving, we're inching away from the negativity. I'll show you one last approach, then we're going to pull it, and then we're going to stop. And this approach, again, especially in light, it's a complicated story. Let's, let's, uh, let's acknowledge the fact that if we want to read the story critically, textually, not just ignore the right, going through the text, which we did slowly, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated to understand. And ultimately, it's complicated because we believe that these people are ultimately great people. So while they may have these flaws that are getting in the way, it's, it's hard to understand, right? And certainly at the end of their life, Yaakov speaks greatly of, of these people involved. It, it's, it's, it's hard to fully understand. So I'll share with you one final approach, which draws upon the Barbanel, but says it in a way that I'm personally much more comfortable with. Easier for me to understand. This is the approach of Samson or Falhirsch. He suggests that Yosef wasn't trying to play God. He was trying, again, he was still social engineering, um, but he was trying to create or recreate a family. Meaning, the brothers were decades ago felt that he was self-centered and was all about himself and didn't care about them. They, um, they felt, right, that, that he was power-hungry and full of himself, right? He saw them acting viciously towards them, towards him. He saw them as being uncaring and they saw him as being power-hungry, right? So, suggest first. When Yosef became king, he could have just immediately sent that postcard that I suggested and said, hey guys, I'm here. And they may have even, you know, set up shop in Egypt and got together and had a family meal. But would they really have gotten together? They would have been physically together, but emotionally, 
they would have been worlds apart because they still would have trusted one another. They still would have seen Yosef as a power-hungry, self-centered person, and he would have seen them as the people who tried to kill him, who, who didn't care about him whatsoever, right? And so what Yosef is trying to do is not create tshuva. That's in God's domain. What he's trying to do and still is a little audacious, okay? But ultimately what Yosef is trying to do is demonstrate two things. One thing to himself and one thing to them. To, him, to them, he's trying to demonstrate that he will not abuse power. They were saying, you're going to, what? They were afraid of this person who is power hungry, who's going to ruin their lives. He has to demonstrate that he is not going to abuse power. That will make him, put him in a good light. And they, he has to see from them that they have changed. And they're no longer self-centered, not caring about the family of Rachel, that they actually care. So now let's put all the pieces, it's the same pieces from before. Ultimately what he does, and think about the whole story, right? Some of the things we didn't really address is that he has to first of all demonstrate to them, first and foremost, that he has immense power. And he does. Not just because he's second in command, but he takes Shimon, their most powerful, violent brother, and puts him into captivity. He demonstrates, right? First he has to show that he does have power. But then he has to demonstrate benevolence. How does he demonstrate? There's a couple of details we skipped over. Well, how does he demonstrate benevolence? He gives their money back. Right? He treats them with kindness when they come in. Right? He demonstrates that, yes, he does have power, but he doesn't abuse that power. He's able to treat them with kindness, which he does. He treats them the second time around with a lot of love. He gives them their money back. He treats them with a lot of love, demonstrating that he's not just take, take, me, 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 take, 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 but he's able to, again, he's able to give. And at the same time, he has to see from them if they will defend Minyamin. And again, like it's setting up a scenario where will they defend Benjamin? And when they do, he sees that they are different people. And now he is able to be connected to them. And he hopes through his demonstration of power and yet benevolence, they ho- he hopes that they will see him in a different light. And so when he lowers that mask, according to this approach, when he finally demonstrates who he is, it's not just revealing himself. What he was attempting to do was break down the, the walls, the barriers that stood between them. It wasn't just, I'm Yosef, your brother. It was, I'm Yosef, your brother. We can now act like brothers. We can now act like a family because, look, I'm not after anything. I could have done so much worse to you. I have all the power in the world. I could have all had you killed. And I treated you with kindness. And I will continue as he says there. Come, come with your families. I have everything and I'm going to give it to you. Whatever you need. He's able to demonstrate to them that he's not power hungry and not abusing power. He's using his power to help them and to love them. And at the same time, by having them go through this whole charade and the whole Binyamin, will they give themselves up for Binyamin? It has been clear to him that they have changed as well. So according to this last approach, the goal is not dream fulfillment. It's not about uh, trying to drive them crazy. And it's not about acting as God. It's about reuniting the family, not just physically, but emotionally as well, and trying to allow each party to see how much they've changed. And that's what Yosef's agenda was all along. And that's why now and only now is he able to truly reveal himself. Okay, so these are four different approaches. The last approach is one that speaks to me. It's the easiest for me to understand. It puts Yosef and the brothers in a beautiful light, demonstrating that they've changed, he's changed, and now we could embrace them. Yes, they have made mistakes. We're not suggesting they didn't, but ultimately they become greater people in the process. And that really is the story of Yosef and his brothers. A lot of tragedy, a lot of sadness, a lot of scary parts, parts which are very, very unnerving and jarring and, and disturbing. But at least according to this last approach, it is a story where ultimately people who made terrible mistakes were able to change themselves. And that's what makes the story, to me at least, so incredibly inspiring. That's we'll- the easiest to accept.